the uh, TV series Mythbusters tested the idea of they did this <laughs> blowing up a 747 by igniting a stream of jet fuel and rated it as busted. Yeah. I mean, that figures. <laughs> I mean, of course, right? And honestly, like you said, not a scene that really bothers me that much. Like, I'm fine with that being sort of the culmination of everything. And he, like, finds a way to best them in a funny, interesting way. Says his catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> you mean, uh, yippee Kaye, Mr. Falcon? Yeah. <laughs> is that the TNT version? <laughs> That's the, that, that is the TBS version, yeah. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 253 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Rennie Harlan's 1990 film, Die Hard 2. Die Harder? Yeah. We watched it on YouTube. (laughs) Don't forget. We rented it on YouTube. And uh, the caption was literally colon, Die Harder. And I was Die Harder. It's like, that's like a meme now, I feel like. It like, really is. It's like Electric Boogaloo kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. Like, it's it's a, it's a joke name. I'm really curious to know what you think of this movie, man, because you said you'd seen it before, but it had been so long, it probably felt like watching it new. I'd seen it multiple times, and there was so much I did not remember. It, I couldn't believe how much they leaned on the first movie to oh, just yeah. sort of be like, greatest hits, here we go again. So many references. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a good time with it. There were things that I definitely didn't like in it but a part of me at the end of the movie when the credits rolled when the christmas music playing i'm like i think they captured just enough to make it like a serviceable yeah sequel but i definitely don't recommend it unless you're like really into die hard yeah. and want to see the second one i am aligned with you in many ways and i i was trying to analyze in myself what was happening and i'm like because I, I had some conflicting emotions about it and like one thing i realized is that i am a sucker for over the top broad action movies all of the all broad action movies well here's, just here's like, the thing yeah. here's the thing I enjoy watching them, but they can be well-written. It's possible. Because I think, like, sometimes this sort of movie, like, people get the sense that they're all not very well-written. They're just fine. But, like, you can have extremely well-written action movies that can be just as fun and over-the-top as anything like this, right? We've seen it happen. And those are when it comes together. But, like, the poorly written action movie, especially of, like, the 80s and 90s, they're still watchable for me, and they're still kind of fun, even if I'm looking at it and going, like, this was not written well. That colon die harder, I think, is, like, the perfect encapsulation of what this movie is. It 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 feels kind of like a just a soulless cash grab. We made a bunch kind of unexpectedly with Die Hard. Let's pop out another Die Hard two years later. We'll probably release it around Christmas. We'll try and recapture what we just had as an explosion of success, and... We're going to make a million references to the first movie. We're going to have all the visual cues, all the auditory cues. Um, and rather than have any sort of actual character arc for John McClane, he is going to be a vehicle for delivering one-liners. John McClane was already kind of a caricature, but he loses all humanity already in this movie. And he's just this wisecracking, uh, one-line-delivering action hero who who just 
can kind of go like, I can't believe I'm doing this again, and then kill a bunch of fucking terrorists. And like, I mean, we they literally have an elevator scene, and he's like, I've done this before, and you're like, come on. It happens over and over again. The flimsiest reason for him to get into a, a fucking air duct, and he's like, here we go again, let's do it. It's like, he has to get to another part of the airport, and for some reason, he needs to go in an air duct. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. Interesting that you mentioned Cash Grab, because this movie actually, on the success, I would argue, of the first movie, more than doubled the the income of of the first movie. I hate it. <laughs> this happens. You, it's like this is why it happens, and Hollywood has learned this, and it's so unfortunate. You get a su- surprise success, especially the one that grows over time, which I'm sure Die Hard did. Right over time, people are like, "Holy shit, this is a good movie!" All, all this word of mouth, all this buzz, all this good feeling, and they say, "There's a wave right now." How can we get another movie out ASAP? Well, what we know we're going to do, we're going to grab this book, 58 Minutes, and we're going to slap John McClane into the plot, uh, and then we're going gonna to do as many references to the first movie as we can. In fact, use a lot of it as just kind of a skeleton. Just tell the same basic story as much as we can. Cash in. And it worked. It worked. <laughs> It did work. Even I think the next one goes on to, to make a bunch of money as well. Well, Die Hard 3 is a better movie than this one, I think. In my opinion, Die Hard 3 is better because Die Hard 3 is actually a movie. Yeah, that's the one that I remember as a sequel to Die Hard more, yeah. th- more so than this. Yeah, it, it, and I think it's is it McTiernan again, I think, in the third one. I think he yeah. returned. Um, so, so in that sense, it also feels similar. He was supposed to direct this one as well. Were you aware of that? I did not. I, did. I don't know anything about the behind the scenes stuff, so I'm really curious to hear from you. Yeah, we, there's a bunch of stuff to talk about, but okay. Well, wait, wait, wait. before we get into it, I, I'm realizing we're like launching right into it, which is what we love to do. Like we get on here and we just start talking about the movie. We start talking about the book immediately. Uh, let's pause for a moment, <laughs> introduce. You know, hey everybody, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah. By the way, um, there was a Hanukkah like lighting of the candles last night out in the park near me near my house a bunch of people gathered i think it's the first night of hanukkah and i was realizing that we don't like say that enough um because i'm sure we have jewish listeners who totally yeah yeah and we have we have uh, i mean i had friends growing up that were were practicing jewish like i i am like my family is jewish but not practicing and they uh i remember how much fun it was for me to see uh like a different holiday being celebrated yeah. and we i'd love to like yeah highlight uh, you know kwanzaa is another one that's talked about often right. with, with uh christmas and- admittedly i know i know next to nothing about kwanzaa so i'm hesitant to talk about it because i i literally just know nothing about it other than like caricatures i've seen a family guy or some shit so i'm like i don't want to rely on that for anything <laughs> well just whatever you're celebrating it is the holiday time period most people are getting some time off of work um, so, you know, hopefully whether you celebrate any of these holidays or not, you're having an enjoyable season here. And, and we'll be talking about Christmas. This is, this is our sort of Christmas project and, you know, kind of a Christmas movie. We get the Christmas tree early on Christmas music comes in and they're definitely trying to evoke that vibe. Um, so I think this is safe to say this is also a Christmas movie. If, if Die Hard One's a Christmas movie, this is also one, except for this movie just isn't nearly as good as the first Die Hard. And it's funny because earlier I said something about this not being a real movie. I kind of feel like this isn't, even though, like, technically, of course, it is. Um, and I, I want to, like, unpack why I feel that way. I mean, it does kind of feel just, like, f- almost filler, like, it's redo. It's, like, yeah. artistically bankrupt in so many ways. <laughs> um, and yeah. it's weird because I don't feel, like, I feel passionately about it, but I also don't. 
Like it's fine, right. it's okay, it's watchable. At the same time, it's artistically bankrupt. So it's like I don't know, I don't know how to square these things. <laughs> it's kind of a, a unique thing in that way because most of the time I do feel more passionate. Like you're saying, I do feel like oh, we should tell people not to watch this. And this is a case where like other than some of the offensive things that go on in it and some of the weird stuff that's you know b- baked into an action movie in the early '90s. Yeah, early '90s. Some stuff hasn't aged well, but like honestly. It's not as bad as like other the, movies from this time period. It's not as bad as the book either, I would say. Yeah. Oh, definitely not. Yeah, the so, book was worse, yeah. So I was saying before, John McTiernan was supposed to come back. What do you think he directed instead of this? I'll give you a hint. It's something that we covered on the podcast. Oh, was it Hunt for Red October? It was. was. McTiernan? Okay. Yeah, Hunt for Red October. So That's a better movie than this movie. He instead, he had a commitment to to directing Hunt for Red October too. So so it wasn't like he sort of chose one or the other. He he They were pushing both movies out at the same time alternate universe you have to think that mctiernan directing this it's a better movie right i would think with the third one also being kind of the better sequel well because john john mcclain is treated like a person again in the third one like yeah he's an action hero don't get me wrong but he is like a mess and his marriage has has fallen apart and he's like fallen into alcohol and and he's i think he's been suspended from the force like he's not doing well and in this movie he's doing great this is john mcclain at like that you know he's living life he's he's become a cop in la now he's moved from new york to la to be closer to his wife yeah, yeah to be closer to his wife he seems happy like he, they're in dc randomly and i don't think it's ever really explained why they're in dc or something with her parents right? or in-laws something like something that with yeah. His in-law. yeah i think it's his in-laws he's with or something uh, he's a new york cop though right he's like, in- that's like the no, no no he was a new york cop and now he's an la cop when he shows his badge it's an la badge but i feel like in the future he's again a new york cop i think he does go back yeah yeah so it's like he's randomly <laughs> an la cop for one movie yeah for one movie he's an la cop and they're like shitting on him for being an la cop they're like yeah. we don't give a shit that you're from la and he's like i'm not you're like isn't <laughs> yeah. he a new york cop well that's like the whole thing at the start with this other cop he's like, trying to explain to him that he's actually from new york and all this stuff and he's not having it in the first Die Hard, john mcclain had only a few scripted one-liners the the one-liners were were well loved by the audience and so in this one they added more <laughs> gags and they they told Willis to ad-lib as much as he saw fit. Oh my god. No. No. It was such a bad decision. And plus I think they put some in in post. There's one here at the start that that I'm like almost certain was added in post because he's not facing the camera when it's said. He's running he's like running from the camera and getting shot at. And just a one-liner drops in our ears. And I'm like, where did that come from? I think they added it later. And it's not a good time to be doing this. Um, and that kind of stuff takes away from the movie. And it also feels soulless to me. Like you said, it's, it feels like market research done on the first movie. What did they like about the first movie? Let's do more of that. Let's die harder this time. Die harder. <laughs> Bigger, faster, faster and more intense. Why do they not realize that what people like about movies are good stories? Like, I, I don't get where the disconnect is. They don't like the one-liners. They like that the one-liners are delivered during a good movie. I mean, and we like, can go off on a tirade here, but there's something to be said for <laughs> the way that all of these industries are run. Like, typically, people who are sort of, they like the arts, but aren't artists themselves, are making decisions that affect the art. And so yeah. it's really interesting when... And you're making money, man. So you bring somebody in, you're like, hey, you know, put this thing together. You don't have much time, but hey, maybe throw some one-liners in there. And guess what? We're all going to cash cash in. And exactly. Make lots of money. And so, like, ultimately... Some people's job here isn't to make the movie good; it's to make the movie money, and like that's. But it's you know. a shame, man. People should be thinking about their artistic legacies. Totally, no, think totally. Think about it. Think about the career you're putting together, and like value that. Well, speaking of career, 
being put together, let's talk about the filmmaker a little bit. His name is Rennie Harlan, and he's a Finnish film director, producer, and screenwriter who has made his career in Hollywood and China. His best-known films include A Nightmare on Elm Street for The Dream Master, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, Die Hard 2, Cliffhanger. I think, wait, Cliffhanger. I might have seen that. Is that uh, uh, Rambo in that one? Oh, Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. yeah. I think he wrote it and stars in it. John Lithgow is also in it. Mm-hmm. Cre- th- this person has a really interesting blend of, of movies, but they all kind of feel like you're like, okay, yeah, I can see that this person directed that. Yeah. I can see I can see that the director of Cliffhanger also directed this movie. I would argue Cliffhanger is the better movie, but it's been a long fucking time since I've seen that, so I can't stand behind it. We'll wait for these two. He also directed The Long Kiss Goodnight. Have I seen with that? With Samuel Jackson. I don't know if I have. And then the, the other one that he directed that I know that you've seen is uh, Deep Blue Sea. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I have seen that. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Samuel L. Jackson, uh, one of the funniest moments, I think, in movie history. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> huge uh like super <laughs> iconic moment for for kind of bad movies i would yeah guess. i mean the movie is not good but th- that's another one where like it probably is kind of fun to watch today because of how ridiculous it is uh, yeah and i feel yeah. like that there's something in common with this movie with yeah. that as well right like yeah that's the thing it's like it is a fun movie it's just not a good movie <laughs> yeah. So you were talking about legacy and you think like, OK, so Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master was sort of his breakout. And I think, I, you know, I'm not super I'm not an expert on these, yeah, these I, uh, Nightmare on Elm I, Street movies, but I think it, I haven't watched many of them at all, to be I honest. Th- I think that's like the meta one that's like okay. weird and different. And people I think people do like that one or maybe they hate it. I can't remember right now, <laughs> but but uh, right in and let us know. <laughs> so he's got that. He's got Die Hard 2 and then uh, Long Kiss Goodnight and Deep Blue Sea. But Notably, um, he also directed in 1995 a film called Cutthroat Island. Are you familiar with this no, movie? don't know it. So Cutthroat Island basically made it so that no one was allowed to make pirate movies for like 10 years. Oh, that's that movie. Okay. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard about this movie. I just, you know, I don't know about it. For a long period of time, it was like the most notorious box office bomb. Mm. It, um, it notoriously had a troubled and chaotic production which involved rewrites and recasting. You know, the reviews were poor. The production values, because they actually shot it on location, on boats, the action sequences, everything was basically done practically. And then it, I think it cost or lost them $147 million when adjusted for inflation. Um, It is listed in the Guinness World Records as the biggest box office bomb of all time. So I don't know if that still stands. But it... So uh, that that beat out... um John Carter. John Carter, yeah. That beat out John Carter. <laughs> I think it did, as far as I know. But um, the biggest thing being, it, it, I remember this being a big deal because it significantly reduced the bankability of Hollywood production pirate-themed films until Pirates of the Caribbean in 2003, you know, to, to basically sink a genre for a decade. I hate that that happens. Pretty brutal. I, like, I understand yeah. how it happens. I just hate that it happens. Well, it's like, the same thing, right? Like, studios see that as, like, a bomb, and they're like, okay, so people don't like pirate movies. Let's do yeah, other stuff. Wrong lesson is always learned. <laughs> yes. So the other crazy thing, though, is that it it caused the closing of, of Car Loco Pictures. So, like, an entire production company went under because of the bombing of this film. So Okay. But that was, that was after this. So this comes before in his filmography. Right die before, hard, yeah, harder, five yeah. years, five, five years earlier, it seems. So he's not on a great trajectory, unfortunately. Yeah, but he goes on to continue working. This is so he he directed in two thousand four, The Exorcist, begin the beginning. Okay, I heard that movie wasn't good. I he directed The Covenant. I remember The Covenant being a thing it. that people were talking. I I definitely remember that one coming out. Okay. Yeah, and then he still. Uh, I mean, he had a film come out this year called The Refuge. Movies coming out in twenty twenty one. Okay, so he's uh, still working. Previously, yeah, still working. And then he had a movie 
that I remember coming out in 2014 called The Legend of Hercules, which also didn't do very well. It's wild to see a, a career like this, you know? I, I, I don't know what to say because it seems like people see his movies yeah, uh, at least a little bit, and sometimes they right. bomb. But there's a lot of there's a lot of misses on that list that I ju- that you just read off. So it is interesting that he's yeah still getting work. So okay. And then uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about after the success of A Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master, he was set to direct the science fiction thriller Alien Three. Okay, that ended up being um uh Fincher. Fincher, right? And yeah. we just talked about that with Fight Club last project. And um, he was attached to the project for a little over a year, left due to creative dins- differences with the producers. And then obviously we know that it didn't go super well for, for Fincher either. can't imagine it would have been better under his uh, direction, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Who, I mean, like either way, it turned out to be, it seems the studio was heavily involved and, and, you know, he left due to creative differences and then Fincher wishes he would have left due to creative differences. So like neither, you know, it didn't turn out well. It seems so, because so of Fincher still was but button up against the same producers. Sounds like. Yeah. It's, and the, I think that ultimately sort of sank the, sank the project, which again, you know I don't what? think they probably wanted a cash grab on the success of aliens, much like die harder. They wanted alien harder. Sure. Yeah. Which would be awesome, man. Let's see that. <laughs> it's not awesome. <laughs> Actually, yeah, eventually we get like Alien versus Predator and Yeah, you know. so I think we've seen that movie several times now. <laughs> right. Well that's I mean, like if you just look at the difference between Alien and Aliens, two absolutely fantastic movies in their own right. And then you see Die Hard and Die Harder and ugh. You know what I mean? Like it just shows the difference in like what a sequel can be versus the this is like the cliche Hollywood soulless sequel. Like we saw with Jaws 2 Yeah, when we covered that. That's like the one that comes to mind that we've covered, you know, in the last couple of years that, that reminds me of it. And that it's it just feels artistically bankrupt. It feels like a cash grab. Yeah. And part of me thinks that Hollywood doesn't make this exact movie anymore. But at the same time, like the, every once in a while, it I does think, happen. I think they do. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what I mean is specifically like this, like super broad, I, I guess... Yeah. for lack of a better term, action movie that's like... It is a, it is of a, of a particular time at that like ni- 80s to 90s cusp um, where... They were like, let's say fuck a bunch of times. Let's go hyper violent yeah. and let's do like... There was some really bloody and like brutal parts in this movie that don't feel like they fit. Yeah. The tone, like I can't remember the character's name, but he's basically like helping get the, the dishes back up or he's mm-hmm. trying to get communication back up. And like he sees a bunch of people murdered. He's shot in the arm and stuff. Yeah. And then they're like afterwards, he's like, get help. And they're still kind of throwing one liners at each other. And you're like, these people were just brutally killed. Violence is not taken seriously in this movie at all, which is the one thing that like I don't think you can say about Die Hard. Like to me, the violence in that movie is over the top and action as it is. It's taken seriously in a, in a way, you know. I, I, don't I know. mean, I don't know. I would say more seriously than this. I don't know if it was taken like seriously. You know, it's yeah. it, the, the movie. It's tongue in cheek a little bit, like whether they were intentionally doing it or not. I think not. because, like, so you remember, if you remember the book we covered, Roderick Thorpe's book, Joe Leland kills a bunch of people. That takes the violence very seriously. Like it's a dark book, and I think some of that DNA made it into Die Hard, and that's one of the reasons why there is still like a, a serious undertone to it. John McClane feels like a human being. And he feels the weight of some of the stuff that he does, I think. But here, this John McClane is kind of scary in the sense that, like, he doesn't seem to give a fuck about any no, he's, of this. He's, like, murder, murdering people with no remorse. Happy and, like, to kill them. It kind of reminds me of, like, that those, like, uncharted memes, right? Where you're, like, <laughs> he's, like, yeah. going around, he kills, you're in an encounter, and you kill, like, 35 people, and in the next sequence, he's, like... 
uh, you know, we need to find this treasure is the most important thing. And you're like, you just murdered like a ton of people. <laughs> yeah. No, it totally is just like that, honestly. And I bet there's, there's, you can tie back some of the uncharted, uh, you know, obviously based off more of like Indiana Jones, but that like one line delivering uh, action hero. A lot of John McClane is in there probably. Yeah. I think all of the Uncharted's are better written than something like this. Oh, but, sure, sure. But yeah, same kind of like action hero kind of vibe for sure. So, so do you have any background on the making of this movie? Like how did this come to be? Yeah, so I read that the screenplay was obviously adapted from Walter Wager's novel, 58 right. Minutes. But Roderick Thorpe is also credited in this film for creating, quote, certain original characters. Yeah, I saw that. I actually stayed through the credits to, to find out if they were going to mention it at all. It's pretty deep in the credits before either of them get mentioned. And then, yeah, I saw that, like, certain original characters. That was, that was an interesting phrase I'd never seen before. I don't think you'll ever see it again either. <laughs> it's like, this is so unique in that way. One of the writers of the screenplay, Stephen E. DeSouza, later admitted in an interview for the book Action Speaks Louder, Violence, Spectacle, and the American Action Movie, that the villains were based on America's Central American meddling, primarily the Iran-Contra affair. Yeah. So that was an interesting thing we, we should touch on. Uh, we talked a lot about the terrorists in the book, and they definitely changed a lot of them, like what the situation is. The main bad guy is an American who, like Colonel, who's now disgraced, and he talks about how, like his main. Okay, it's hard to unpack what his actual motivations are because we don't spend a lot of time with it, and it's not really laid out. And it doesn't matter. The it movie's not matter. concerned with telling us. But at some point, he does say something about the reason he wants to free this, this uh, general. I think he is who's flying in is that we need guys like him to fight the communists. And that was yeah, like the only basically. thing I remember him saying. Yeah, at one point, and I've never really heard this word before. I had to look it up. There's a reporter who's trying to figure out what's happening, talking to the colonel, and then his like henchman pu yeah. pushes the camera and says, like, get out of here, you pinko bitch. And I don't know if okay. that's like highly offensive or whatever, but in looking it up, it's like a left-wing liberal slur i guess towards the okay. people like that leaning all the way to i would assume communism and they're so anti-communist right uh, right yeah in this film it seems i kind of like that they position them as like just far-right extremists essentially who don't think america goes far enough that makes a lot of what goes on with like john mcclain seem a lot more reasonable right <laughs> um which you know maybe it's not great but like still it's it's a uh, it's preferable to what we got in the book right where we, we talked about a lot of the problems with that so yeah i think i think this is better and it's interesting because it's coming out pretty soon together right like it's only a few years difference yeah i think they, they chose something in that the the contra thing that they wanted to talk i don't know a lot about it to be honest right well and, and to talk about conflicts what is the deal and i think this might be the case with with a lot of the diehard films um they're just randomly mentioning conflicts and wars and stuff. Did you notice this? They're like, oh, just like Pearl Harbor or like they talk about at one point they talk about like Granada, Grenada, Iwo Jima. Uh, I, Iwo think Jima. That, I think that might be the uh, something about the janitor is supposed to be like a World War II vet, but he didn't seem old enough, but maybe he was at the time. I guess it was the 90s. So still like World War II would have been like over, like 40 something years before that. Maybe he could be in his 60s. Maybe he yeah. could have been. Okay. Anyway, I think they were trying to make references to World War II for some reason. For that but character. it wasn't just him. It was yeah. It was multiple other people were talking about different. I do think Die Hard likes to try and position itself as like a movie of its time, right? So it, like even if you look at later movies, it, it, they usually try and like touch on like stuff that's going on with technology at the time and stuff that's, go you know, and like they, they try and do that here with the air, the air phones and all this stuff. 
Um, you know, John McClane famously isn't good with technology. And so he's kind of like this bumbling oaf when it comes to that stuff. I couldn't tell if it was that or if it was like they felt like the viewers that were going to watch a diehard movie were well versed in these conflicts and they liked like battles and that kind of stuff as well because then they're also you know in the same way that we talked about last week they talk about like a specific gun that somebody has at one point and that feels like in the same vein of trying to they can get through security apparently you can just also walk through security with a taser apparently yeah (laughs) didn't know that (laughs) right no it was a different time it was a different time (laughs) so go ahead and flare it up on an airplane too right (laughs) yeah you know stuff was wild back then you can smoke anywhere in an airport apparently with no no problem and on an airplane i think there were people yeah i don't know how accurate all this is but um I, i would believe it for the 90s so who knows I just know I wouldn't want to be in an airport where people are smoking everywhere. That just sounds miserable. Nothing against it. People want to smoke. It's their choice. But like, man, I, I just don't want to sit in like around it and have it blowing on me and just it doesn't smell very good. <laughs> sure. No, yeah. You. I mean, like, you know, I, I same thing. I don't care if people smoke, but preferably not when I'm like, like, because I know that was a thing in the, the 80s and yeah. 90s is like you'd be at a restaurant. Smoke people everywhere. Be smoking like all over your food and stuff. Yep. You're like everything just smelled like smoke all the time. It had to basically. Right. <laughs> yeah. It gets into everything. Anyway, right. <laughs> I'm sure we're pissing off our smoking listeners, but <laughs> you mentioned the technology of the time, uh, and let's let's talk about some of these references, right? And how fun it is in hindsight, because there it, he he even has this moment with the fax machine where he's like, "My wife told me that I got to get with the times. It's the '90s." There was actually a good line with that one. Just the fax, ma'am. I like that line. It's very <laughs> cringy and it's got a dad humor. But I, I thought it was clever. It also could only be delivered in like a narrow window where like faxing was relevant. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, paging is relevant to this movie as well. Like he almost gets he almost gets killed by because his pager goes off while he's trying to run up on these guys. I think they're trying to show like the novelty of like you can watch broadcast television on an airplane and, and we have phones that'll, yeah, that'll I know, connect. Right? We're in the future. This yeah. is the 1990s, John. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, all their all their computer equipment that they're rigging up and everything is supposed to seem yeah. like very future. Well, it's like in, in, in the first movie when he goes up and there's touch screens and he's like, oh, you know, he's that's like one of the things of the first movie. It works better in the first movie than it does here, in my opinion. But, you know, same kind of deal. They're trying to hit a lot of the same beats. I'm telling you, like a lot of the story beats are identical. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's there to pick up his daughter, basically, right? And there's something to do with it, or his wife. He's there to and get I think Holly, in the, yeah. His in, wife's in the first one, there's something going on with his daughter, right? Or is that No, it's also daughter? Holly. But both of them in the books, it's daughter. I think it's Joe Leland's daughter in the book, and then in the book we just read, it's his daughter. That's probably what I was thinking then, yeah. Yeah. So, and that, I feel like the plot of almost all the diehards that I can think of off the top of my head have this, like, there's a couple things, right? Your villain, there's going to be a twist with the villain, where they're not who you expected or they, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think of in the first movie when when um, Hans Gruber, like, acts like he's, he's like, trying to escape. He's like, oh, help me, help me. Mm. And, you know, your villain sort of flipping and him not believing it at first. And that's kind of the similar. Yeah, there's that. But I would say also that there's some sort of twist with, like, either the motivations or the identities of the of the villain like you said and here you know it's it's we'll get to it but in the first movie it's also that Hans Gruber is actually just a thief right like he's not here for all of these high and mighty reasons he actually just wants money um, and then we see that kind of twist happen in a lot of diehard movies yeah do you want to jump into plot yeah let's do it 
Okay, so on Christmas Eve, two years after the events of the previous film, John McClane is now a lieutenant with the LAPD, who arrives at Dulles International Airport to pick up his wife, Holly. Meanwhile, a plane carrying corrupt foreign military leader, General Ramon Esperanza, is also headed to Dulles under extradition for using U.S. funds to buy drugs. Waiting to meet Esperanza's plane is disgraced former Colonel William Stewart and a group of ex-military sympathizers who supported Esperanza's actions. Suspicious, McLean follows two of Stewart's men into a restricted baggage sorting area where a gunfight ensues. McLean kills one man, but the others escape. With the help of his friend, Sergeant Al Powell, he discovers the dead man's fingerprints correspond to an American soldier who died in a helicopter accident two years ago. Putting this together with Esperanza's imminent arrival, McLean reports his concerns to the airport police chief, Carmine Lorenzo, and air traffic control director, Ed Trudeau but neither believe him. They're convinced when Stewart and his men operating out of a church on the outskirts of the airport cut all communications with incoming airplanes, disable all runway lighting, and demand Esperanza's plane be allowed to land without interference. Under Stewart's direction, Trudeau orders all air traffic controllers to have all planes in Dulles airspace hold in the air despite their low fuel warnings. I wanted to ask you, why do we get an extended nude aerobics scene with our villain when it introduces him? I, I have some theories, but I want to know what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, I thought it was incredible. Um, <laughs> best way to start a movie and have a villain and be introduced. It's striking, you know. It's very bizarre and memorable. One of the only thing, scenes, like, there are a few scenes from this movie that I always remember. This is one of them. I'm just like, I remember this guy doing, like, nude aerobics in his in his hotel room, and it always shocked me. Like, I saw this when I was young. Younger than I should have been. And I remember being yeah. like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty bold way to start a movie. Um, apparently, it was the director's idea um, that he be introduced naked doing martial arts. Um, and he would later say it was, quote, an effective but unusual way to introduce a character. I mean, I agree with that, I guess. Uh, we see him repeat some of the same motions later, much later in the movie when they're fighting. So it kind of pays off in that sense. It To me, it just sets him off as being... A very serious, but very unusual. He is the opposite of an everyman, which is what John McClane is supposed to be, right? So so it really sets him up as being very, very different than McClane. Like, who is this guy? Like, no one does this. And uh, and then he shoots the TV with a remote, which was kind of weird. But then I thought, they, they, you know, they have this scene where he's walking out, and he's very serious, and he's got his boots. And then we see all these other men joining him in the hallway, and they're all walking together, and they get on, I think, even get on an elevator. And it was, to me, it was, again, like, we're trying to almost, shot for shot, remake some scenes from the first movie, right? With, like, uh, it really Gruber leading like it. his group. Like, it's it, they were really trying to say, like, hey, look, it's happening again, like, identical. <laughs> it's weird that he's famous and like walking around in the airport and getting getting recognized that seems like a very bad idea if you're trying to pull something off like this to just be like yeah rolling around in the airport and getting recognized by reporters and i don't know about you but if i'm a reporter and you're just trying to get information from somebody and and you're like hey do you have a quote or anything and he's like i got two words for you fuck and you I'm probably gonna like be like, okay, what's going on with this guy? Let me continue to investigate that guy. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in my report. <laughs> you know, that's gonna be on the right. news report. Like, try to talk to this guy, and here's what he said: beep and beep. Yeah, <laughs> he seems to be up for up to something. <laughs> yeah, they didn't seem to be like trying to to hide it very well. Okay, this guy who is what is the actor's name? I don't have the IMDb in front of me, but the actor who plays this villain, he looks so familiar, and I feel like 
in this time period, he plays a bunch of villains, right? Like for like a five or 10 year span. I think just for in general, he plays he plays a lot of villains. His name is William Sadler. And um, his biggest credits are Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Is that the recent one or the original one? That's the sequel. That's the sequel. Okay, I don't yeah. think I saw Excellent that. Excellent Adventure is the first original, one. Original, yeah, yeah. Um, Shawshank Redemption, he's in. Okay. So that could possibly be... I think that was my ref- frame of reference for him. He was. He, I think he was in Shawshank and The Green Mile. There was another familiar face uh, in, a, in a guy who has a fairly limited role, but it was T-1000 himself shows up in he, this movie. He was there, yeah. <laughs> His name's Robert Patrick, yeah. T-1000 himself. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's and he's got this, like, uh, efficiency to his actions and, like, a cold expression. Like, he's actually pretty interesting even in this very limited role. Incredibly limited. I, and, you know, it's funny. There's a few people that I... So, so one person I saw and then one person I read was in it. Did you see John Leguizamo in this movie? I did. He's in my notes. He's literally in it for like a one shot. Yeah. And and I read online after the fact that he was supposed to have a larger role, but then he showed up to set and the director realized how short he was and cut a lot of his role. Uh, Because he didn't look the part, I guess. Which is super fucked up. That is pretty fucked up. Well, yeah, because like all of the guys in this military force do look very similar. There's like, I think one black guy and then later the, the other black guy, but like... For the most part, it's a bunch of white dudes. Their hair is all in the same fashion. I guess it's supposed to be kind of a military look. I mean, I might be wrong, but it, it, it just it it was it was a very consistent thing. So I guess that was something the director was specifically going for. Pretty messed up, to be honest. Like to hear that. Uh, you know, th- there. If you were so worried about height, then that's something you figure out in the obviously in the casting process. He there's also a, a very quick blink and you'll miss it. Long haired cameo by Lee Schreiber. Oh, okay. Interesting. So one part I do want to talk about is we're starting to build some of the like same sort of tension that is built in Die Hard where like something's up and when is John McClane going to like notice what's happening? And this movie rushes it big time. This could have been drawn out a little bit. Um, And then even when the moment happens, the payoff is not good because... He basically says, like, hey, what are you guys doing back here? This is a restricted area. They just basically start shooting at him. He says, "He says, let me see some ID. And they say, ha ha, okay. And then they start shooting at him. Yeah. He's really far away, so they miss. Like, have the characters get closer. Like, they have the element of surprise. They're smart, efficient killers. This should have been a lot more dangerous. This should have been John McClane having to to be really clever. And it could have been a really cool scene to see how he gets out of this, right? Like, because it could have been really dangerous and they could have ratcheted up the tension because these guys know what they're doing. And I I feel like in a movie like this, as soon as guns are pulled out and start being fired specifically at our protagonist, the movie shifts into another gear and you can't really come back out of it. And I I felt like it was a mistake to, to... jump that early into that yeah there were a few times that i felt that they were trying to slow the movie down for like weird scenes like he would he would finish with this giant action set piece where he like a a plane crashes or something insane and then he's like you know or he's been in a fight and then he like meets with somebody and chats with them for a little bit it's like sections where he like goes out and does something and comes back to like the hub and they're like what's going on how are you he's getting like progressively bloodier um and they tried to slow down the movie a few times doing that and i it made the it feel really disjointed like it didn't I don't know. The pacing was like really up and down um, rather than feeling ratcheting like, up, which is what it should be. Sure. Yeah. yeah. 
I did like, so, you know, as much as it doesn't make a ton of sense, the the sets that they're in with this, like, blowing, this, like, smoke shooting it's out. It's always of, random steam billowing in these scenes. <laughs> and, which is, you know, visually cool. Yeah, it's fine. Um, and, but there's, like, lots of, like, industrial piping and yeah. they're really deep rooms. And it looks, again, like a video game, like a room that you, you get You know what into. it reminded me of? It reminded me of the, there's, like, a scene in Raiders um where they're like riding around on mine carts through this like lava area it looks like a almost like a amusement park yeah is that raiders or temple of doom oh yeah i think you might be right it might be temple of yeah. doom anyway it reminded me a little bit of that like all, apparently you go into the back room of a airport and it's just like all these <laughs> conveyor belts it looks like a video game level <laughs> you know there's billowing billowing mist everywhere it's very industrial yeah yeah yeah, it was and, and like that's fun and fine and and like you know makes for something pretty pretty cool looking. But then it it started to feel s- similar because he kept being in these like duct areas and down below and well, and he's riding around on these conveyor belts and fighting on them and getting thrown in them. One guy gets smooshed by one, and um, it, this also is where my my first like groaning one liner gets done, and that's um, as he's getting shot at the very first time. He's been totally surprised by these guys. They start shooting at him. He goes, what is this, a tag team? I do. Yeah, that's the one that that was also ADR. He didn't say that on the day. It's ADR. He doesn't say it on screen. Like, his face is not at the camera. He's running away from them. He's, like, jumping into hide. And they just decided to add that later. And it's such a bad decision, in my opinion, because this sequence should have had tension. And instead, it's delivered as a joke. I mean, and again, so he's outside of his jurisdiction. We we're talking about uh, copaganda last week. He's outside of his jurisdiction. He decides to go snooping. Uh, he asks a guy them to identify themselves. They start shooting instead of like getting away from the conflict. He's like, "All right, somebody's dying here." He pushes a guy into a like rolling machine that smushes him. Uh, and then he has to go and like, ex- you know, if you did that as a cop and you go to like the, the authorities of the airport, they're not going to be like, oh, what? Oh, good for you for getting out of there. They'd be like, what the fuck? You killed this guy? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, there'd be questions for sure. And like, but I think that this is like, it's so frustrating to me because like this is a this sequence has potential to be good. Yeah. He has no idea what their motivation is in any way, though, is my point. He doesn't yeah. know. And like, if imagine if he like. There's a, a quieter scene where he he says like, "Hey, what are you guys doing back here?" He walks up to them, right, and he's not as quite on guard, but he starts to realize something is dangerous, and they try and kill him, and he ends up killing the guy. Yes, but it's in self, it's like into self defense. He has to do it essentially. This this felt like he could have got away. Like, yeah, I agree with you. It like felt like he could have just run out of there and like actually got some cop, like be like, "Hey, there's something going on here," but instead he he gets caught up in this like very over the top riding on conveyor belt fight like i don't want anybody on conveyor belts they can be in the background this should have been a like a deadly scene that was closer and more personal and then at the end of it i do like the idea of like the cops coming in the actual dc cops and arresting him and being like what the fuck did you do and he has to prove and his id was missing and i like that moment except for it's then turned into a joke he's like oh it's on its way to cleveland and then they just kind of laugh and then the next time he's like oh sorry about that and they're like they everything's fine it's like they had the bones of some actual interesting story tension that they just didn't deliver on. They didn't use it to its full potential. Then he gets into the situation where he he's talking to the authorities. There's this one cop that's got it out for him. Carmine. Are you talking about the other guy? His his brother, apparently. <laughs> well, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> I do think it's interesting when the twist happens that we, a, a different twist uh, happens, where someone who we think is good ends up being bad, and and this cop is it carmine or is that is that carmine's the like chief of the airport 
police yeah. or something. So he ends up kind of being in the right, and they they kind of come to an understanding at some point. Um, so I think that that's a cool twist, but but they're in, being sort of antagonistic to each other got boring to me at some point. I was kind of wanting to see something progress well, in that. Well, it's not really treated seriously. They just, they just yell and scream at each other. He just says dumb shit to him. Like, he's walking out, and he's just gotten disrespected by this guy. And I like the idea of, like, hey, we heard about you from Nakatomi Tower. You think you're some hot shot, but you're not. And he kicks him out. He has him escorted from his office. And it, <laughs> he turns around, and he says, and I listened to it back, and I wrote it down. What sets off the metal detectors first? The lead in your ass or the shit in your brains? Oh, I hated that one. That was what so bad. What does that even mean? It was so bad. It makes no fucking sense. <laughs> I don't get it. So it means like, has he been shot in the ass? And then also like shit sets off metal detectors now? <laughs> I don't know. So not only are you just have it's like, oh my God. Just like, if you're going to have him say anything, he, it needs to be better than that. That is so bad. Well, and you can feel that that's like pretty much totally an ad lib there's no way that somebody wrote that line right but like you gotta rein willis in come on (laughs) i agree yeah but i'm just like i don't know what they were going for regardless if it was ad-libbed or written or who knows it's um you know it's not good and it should not have made it into the movie so um we were talking before about william sadler and his you know karate and the things that he was doing apparently he took it very seriously and like that scene that they filmed the naked scene they filmed was like the last thing that they filmed so that he could get in like incredible shape and he could learn karate and tai chi and all this stuff if they're gonna have you be butt-ass naked doing karate in, in a movie that's gonna be there forever like yeah you probably do take it pretty seriously yeah and honestly like that i'm sure he's very proud of that scene he's like look at me <laughs> you know look at me do this karate naked yeah. um okay so uh i gotta we gotta talk about al Al comes back, and I guess this is one of the characters they're referencing and the, like, certain characters by, because Al was, like, kind of a character in the original uh, Thorpe novel, although they changed him quite a bit for Die Hard. Um, However, we have Al, and what do we know about Al, James? He eats Twinkies. He eats fucking Twinkies, so, of course, he's got four of them that he's currently eating when and he, he literally calls him. calls him on the phone and says take the twinkie out of your mouth is the first thing he says i could i just like come oh, on it's, it's the, this is the kind of stuff where i'm like really we're gonna go like it was interesting in the first movie it was funny in the first movie because they were connecting over trauma and it was like something he heard about him and it's like a one-off i don't know like but like don't just trot it back out again and be like hey remember this elbow elbow whenever a movie's doing that to me constantly i get so annoyed it's like, yes, I remember the first movie. Stop reminding me. All that makes me do is go like, I wish I was watching the first movie, not this one. Right now. Sure. Yeah. A part of me liked seeing the character, but I thought there was going to be more to it. Yeah, there could have been that, more. Like, but end, like, in the end of the movie, there'd be a, a loop back around to like him being involved. I like that they're, that they're clearly still friends. Um, that kind of thing is good. Like it's, To me, it shows a progression of the character, but... I just didn't need that. I, it's just a joke, I guess. It's And that's the weird tone thing in this movie, because I think this movie got too caught up in trying to tell a bunch of jokes, have a bunch of funny one-liners, and have things be over-the-top and silly, and then at the same time have some really brutal violence, you know, big twists, innocent people dying by the hundreds. The, there's the moment when the, one of the planes goes down, and it's, like, legitimately, like, heroin. You're like, oh, my God, like... Yeah. You know, that's my fear of going on, you know, being on a plane is that something's going to happen. You know, instruments malfunction and you're like, fuck, this is like a a fear of a lot of people. Yeah. And he's out there trying anything he can do and he he can't stop it. And, 
you know, it's very broad performance, but like ultimately I'm glad somebody seems to care and is actually like really upset about what happened. And then like there's just a moment where he's like walking through the wreckage and he finds a little baby doll. And I'm like, Jesus, in this movie, <laughs> like we're That's and that's the thing, like he he goes from this hyper action scene or whatever. Yeah. He's you know, or at least high tension Cracking he's cracking jokes. Just so so then he like jumps out of the way, it blows up, and then he he like is so affected by it immediately. And like, it just didn't even ring slightly believable in terms of like his emotions. No, it's, I don't even think it's the fact that he changes to being sad. It's that he then like a a scene later, switches right back, turns it right back off. And now he's back to baseline. Like it, sure it can affect him, but like it should haunt him, but it doesn't. Well, and like, I guess he has a line at the end of the movie where he's like, this is for the passengers of flight. This is for flight 19, 119 or whatever. Yeah. And that's like the only real callback we get to it. Right. Yeah. Everybody at the end, they're kind of all like happy that they're making it out and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but like a plane of people went down, guys. Like this yeah. is like really. Pure like, victory, we, guys. They're like, we did it. Everybody's cheering at the end. And I'm like, well, you guys are cheering still? Like, Yeah. It's still one of the biggest like air tragedies of all time at this. I would say at this point, um, it should be treated as such. Yeah. This movie, like it can't take itself seriously, even while it's trying to like. It, it, it like it makes these like half ass attempts at being serious. Um and this is interesting because it's a change from the book, right? In the book we had this midair collision. So it's it's a shift of that, but like that I thought was actually handled better in the book. It was like a really tragic moment that landed a little better for me, ironically. Um that we do get the fifty eight minutes reference, by the way. It was not what I what I thought I had seen, which was that it was about something about a plane needing fifty eight minutes before it ran out of fuel. This was that was when the general's plane was going to arrive. Was in fifty eight minutes. It's I mean, this is not a reference. Like even having read the book and knowing I was listening for it, I almost missed it, and I had to be like, oh wait, that was the reference. I guess it's really not much of anything, um, but I guess it's notable. Yeah. I guess we've gotten to the point right before I read this next section of plot um, where I should say that Bruce Willis has been interviewed in the, you know, intervening years and he's expressed displeasure with this film because he felt it was too similar to the original Die Hard and he didn't like the constant references to that film. I agree. I agree with him. I just I mean, I think it's interesting that that is going on. And and then I, I guess just he didn't have the wherewithal on the day to kind of be like, maybe we should h- hire some writers to write me some one liners or something. I like, mean, how much power does he have? It's hard to say, right? Yeah. Like, he made like eight million dollars on this movie at the time. It was a lot of money. So he's the big star. You would think he'd have some sway. But right. But I mean, like, are you able to really rock a boat if you're if everybody's just there to make money? You know what I mean? I'm sure there's people were like, don't worry about it. We're going to make money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going to those one liners, I, I did read that this this movie has fuck said 60 times. OK. And it was originally rated X. X? So, yeah. And then and then had <laughs> and then was adjusted to be rated R. OK. <laughs> yeah. The rating system in America is so weird. So it, it just, again, screams to me of like that that 90s sort of like go to the extreme, say fuck a bunch of times, go hyper violent. Um, yeah. And then oh, and then there's just like a lack of substance, unfortunately, in this one. So continuing on with this plot, McLean becomes worried about Holly's plane and enlists the help of the airport janitor Marvin to fight back. Chief airport engineer Leslie Barnes decides to try using an unfinished antenna array to communicate with the stranded circling airplanes. Carmine sends an airport SWAT team with him, but Stewart's men kill them all and destroy the antenna. Barnes is saved by McLean. 
In retaliation, Stewart crashes a British airplane, killing everyone aboard by impersonating air traffic control and faking the airplane's altimeter reading. Once Esperanza's plane lands, McLean wounds Esperanza before Stewart and his men arrive. They blow up the plane and take Esperanza to the church, but fail to kill McLean. A U.S. Special Forces team arrives, led by Major Grant, for whom Stewart is a protege. Grant's men and McLean attack the church. McLean kills one of Stewart's men and gives chase with his gun, but the mercenaries escape on snowmobiles. As confused as to why he failed to wound anyone, McLean realizes the gun was filled with blanks, meaning Grant's team is secretly cooperating with Stewart, and the firefight was staged. Grant, Stewart, their men, and Esperanza all rendezvous at an airport hangar where a Boeing 747 that they demanded is waiting for them. On Holly's flight, arrogant reporter Richard Thornburg becomes suspicious as to why the plane hasn't landed. He taps into the cockpit communications and records an earlier surreptitious transmission from Barnes to all the circling airplanes describing the situation. In the airplane's lavatory, he broadcasts the recording live on television, leading to a panic in the airport terminal which prevents McLean and Carmine from getting to the 747. Holly subdues Thornburg with a fellow passenger's stun gun. McLean asks a news crew to fly him via helicopter to intercept the 747. McLean jumps onto the wing and uses his coat to jam the aileron, preventing the plane from taking off. McLean kills Grant and in the struggle with Stewart opens the fuel valve in the wing. After Stewart kicks McLean off the wing, McLean uses a cigarette lighter to ignite the fuel trail, exploding the plane and killing everyone on board. The fire trail also serves as a landing guide for all airport aircraft, including Holly's, to land safely. After McLean and Holly are reunited, Marvin picks them up in his airport cart and drives them away. Okay, let's, let's reel it back into... Around, all the way back. All the way back, okay. These special forces guys are an interesting plot point, right? Like, they show up, they're very efficient and orderly, and McLean is immediately a little bit distrustful of them, and he even says, like, did things just get better or get worse? And I guess we're, we're to understand that this is his sort of lingering dissatisfaction with how the FBI um, acted in the first movie. Um, and, and I assume that's what's going on here. I do think he, he picks up a little bit on like, Hey, you know, this guy, this Colonel guy, that seems like a conflict of interest. If it's somebody who literally you trained, um, but okay. You know, that could be a plot point in another movie. So fine. Um, and I kind of liked this misdirect. Yeah. It's over the top. I, you know, I don't know why we're, why they would go to these lengths to have like full on, you know, exchanges of gunfire with blanks for whose benefit, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's whatever. It's wasting time, I guess, and it, it works okay. Um, so we have all that happen. There is this like sub-story that goes on with this new recruit guy whom John McClane meets and talks to, and he's like, oh, I've only been here a day, but you know they really know their stuff. And that guy's like with them on the, on the ride over, and uh, he's like, oh, I wish I had been with you guys in Grenada. And he's like, oh, I wish you had too, so I wouldn't have to do this. And he slits his throat. And one of those brutal throat-slitting scenes I've seen in a while, man, like it's right on camera. Like, it doesn't, sh- it doesn't like, pull away. It's just a neck splitting open and blood pouring out. They're wearing all white. And his whole fucking uniform is doused in blood. And, again, it's in this movie where we've just been cracking jokes. Everything's taken not ser- Like, a 230 people just died on a plane. And that that was barely, t- barely taken seriously. Um, it's such a weird there's like this weird back and forth thing that happens. And like, I remember young Luke, like, I think I saw this when I was like fucking 10 years old 
And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, there's that, and then there's the icicle scene that happens later. And I was realizing that all these scenes are in the same damn movie um, that I saw when I was too young to be seeing it. The guy gets fucking stabbed in the eye with an icicle, and it goes like right into his eye socket, and that is shown in gruesome detail. Yeah. Weird thing to show in this movie that otherwise doesn't have this tone. Like, it's so fun and like, oh, we're just having fun with Die Hard. And then all of a sudden you get this stuff and you're like, whoa, it feels like it's from a different movie. It's very strange. It really does. Yeah. And same thing with this airplane crash. And like we talked about already with the, like, you know, him mourning all these people and, and then like moving on very quickly to where McLean has to get on the plane with Esperanza or like catch up with I, him. I mean, like whatever. he should be more serious now. He should stop telling so many fucking one liners, but he, he can't yeah. so, he can't help himself. Just fewer would have been fine. Yeah. Like, he, you know, just not not quite as many. At, at, at everything. Everything is a one-liner. He, he'd be flying through the air and getting shot at, and he'll drop a one-liner on ADR, like, later. So, like, he's always doing it. Right. So, yeah, I, I also like the twist. This this guy, I didn't see it coming, honestly. This guy f- turning sides, and, and I was like, that's the sort of reference I was making before with Die How'd Hard. How do you feel about the blue the blue-red ammo, ammo switch? Yeah, I had no idea what was going on with that. Yeah, it's pretty clever. I mean, like... You might say, like, oh, it's really obvious, you know, like, why would they make it so obvious? But, like, so people don't accidentally shoot at each other with the wrong ammunition. It is funny that they both, like, both sides have the blue versus the red. Um, But, I mean, like, it's plausible enough that they might do it if they were going to do this wild-ass thing. That maybe they would do that uh, system so that they didn't accidentally shoot each other. The least plausible thing that happens in this whole scenario is that McLean proving it to everyone was firing a weapon oh <laughs> at the police chief and everyone pulls guns on McLean and then doesn't shoot him. He would be so fucking dead. <laughs> You'd be so dead. There's no way that you can do that in an airport to a police officer. Also, incredibly dangerous thing to do. Um, not even just because like blanks themselves are not always 100% sometimes stuff comes out the end of the exactly you know? but yep. but i mean like also just like it it's so loud you, you the guy you're doing it to thinks he's dying he's yeah. not going to be fine in the next moment like he literally thinks he's dead in this like it's so over the top and I just, I don't understand how everyone was so composed in that moment. Like all the people who pulled guns on him, no, nobody no shoots him. No way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. You're dead. Uh, so yeah, that was interesting. Uh, let's talk about this other thing. So what did this accomplish when this guy goes on the news and he creates panic? Obviously, I understand his motivation. He wants to get on the news and get a Pulitzer and all these things. Yeah. Same character from the first movie. Like that, that, I will give it to him. Like he feels like the same dude. So her going and tasing him in the bathroom. Yeah. What did that accomplish? I don't know. So th- this plot is interesting, right? Because it's like a trying to rehash a similar plot to the first movie. They're trying to bring it back. He is reporting on what is happening. And I thought it was going to be a re- kind of a redemption for him. Like maybe he's still a huge dickhead, but like he actually gets the story out in a way that is, that you know, like we should be like happy that he did. But instead, he, like... I guess he causes panic. Everybody's pissed at him for getting the news out there. But like, that's the thing. That's the rational thing that most people would do. But they only even know anything's happening. Like the stewardesses and stuff that are so mad at him. It's like a lot of the shit that you know, you know, because of him and his reporting and what he's doing. If you're in the scenario, I think you do the same thing. And the idea is that maybe you can, you know, get the news out there to somebody who needs it. And then they can, you know, rally troops that to whatever to help and, and get it, get the news out there and make sure everything's going right. Out. Like they were they were being limited from being able to tell anybody else about what's going on. So maybe this reporting would be good for the situation. Right. And they were mad at him for for reporting on this stuff like it was supposed to be that because it was making John McClane's job harder 
that he was like a bad guy for doing that. And I was I didn't understand that. I could feel the the script knowing this, whoever's writing the script and realizing they haven't set this up enough. So what do they have him do? They have him start like pontificating in the mirror. Yeah. And like exactly. <laughs> like he's being so he talks about himself in the third person, I think. Like he starts talking about how at great personal risk and like he's just like going off and being so over the top that when he does get tased, you're like, okay, good, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was a weird moment. Didn't feel deserved as much as the guy, like the guy was still a shithead. Like at the start, he's complaining about not getting his first class meal that his company paid for. He's being whiny. He sees Holly and there's that whole thing. And then um, it is fun. I actually thought it was kind of funny how he goes back to talk to his cameraman who's back in coach. Right. <laughs> he's like, I got to go back in coach and talk to him. He's, but like, I, I like, I like that guy. You know, he had, it's like, oh yeah, I got this listening device. I'll figure it out. And like, it's kind of clever reporting on his part. You know, if, if this would somehow work to do this and he does get to the bottom of what's going on, which you would think all the people on the plane would want to know what is actually happening right now. And they wouldn't, I wouldn't think they'd be so mad at them as they apparently were. As if they knew about the panic that was happening in the airport, I guess, was the implication. It seemed like too meta. Like they, they were like, you're ruining the, the plot for our protagonist right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, so you're getting tased yeah, now. Yeah, it was. And again, it felt like just trying to do the same beat. Like we gotta, we're going to try and, you know, it's, it's him getting punched again. We got to like take this guy down a peg. Um, but it didn't really fit. Okay, I want to ask about these these grenades. <laughs> How many grenades you got? Three each. Well, throw them all. And so they just start fucking tossing grenades. <laughs> they just pile in, pile in. He's sitting there looking. He's like, there's all these grenades on the ground. He's like, oh, shit. Well, I could either easily grab the grenades and start throwing them back out because apparently they have so much time. I don't think you do in real life, I should just say, but like in the <laughs> logic of this movie. Um, instead, he's like, all right, let me get in the ejector seat. <laughs> <laughs> he gets in there, gets himself all buckled in, pulls the thing. I don't even think a plane like that would have an ejector seat. Um, like it's a very maybe big it was a plane. military plane, I think. So maybe, but but like you said, let's circle back. There's three grenades each person. That's a lot of grenades. One grenade, and you're fine. He's pinned down. Yeah. He's literally by himself in there. There's no way for him to get out. Yeah. You've got him surrounded. You throw one grenade. If it doesn't go off or some miracle happens, he throws it back out or something crazy. Then you throw another one. Yeah. And like what I, you I just, really I do, know. if you're a professional who knows, you know how long the timer is on him. So you cook it. You pull the grenade. You pull the pin. You count however many seconds, and then you throw it in to where it's going to blow up pretty soon after it gets inside. And you can't do shit. And and you know what you have then? You have a dead John McClane. <laughs> like you don't. Yeah, it was so many grenades. They kept falling in. Like they were like, I, I guess I didn't register. It didn't register when he said it. They were. He was like, how many grenades do we have? And he was like, three each. And I thought maybe they had three total grenades. Yeah, yeah. And then they start. They're just like coming in the window. And he's McClane's like reaction is just holy fuck. Like there's <laughs> they just keep dropping in front of him. And he, like you said, he has enough time to like buckle up his seat. He gets and, off like, the ground. Get gets and, in the seat. Buckles in. Yeah. Pulls the thing gets launched and then it explodes and they're just like, oh, lucky bastard. And then they all leave because there's fire trucks or something coming. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, so you run away from firefighters. Yeah. They just, this is people who just killed an entire SWAT team not long ago and they're going to run away from the firefighters, I guess. Done clearly just for the action. We want to have a scene where John McClane's shooting straight up in the air and there's flames underneath him and he's going, like he does, you know. Like. Yeah. That was so <laughs> crazy too. After all the, all, why aren't they shooting at him? I, yeah, he's floating in the air. He's, that's easy to shoot at. Like I, I don't get I don't it. know. Because he's John McClane and he's got so much plot armor. It's not even funny. Um, yeah, so we also get this this janitor guy who I really felt like they were trying to evoke the um, limousine driver from the first movie. Oh, yeah, especially with the driving around with the car. Especially at the end. But he's just this like kind of oddball friend who's who John McClane has made. But like 
that it never I don't know it never really made a lot of sense to me that it's just like he's just this janitor who happens to be an oddball I didn't need that final sequence at the end which we're getting to where he he picks him up and it's just like the first movie he's got his own little driver and what is he and him and Holly wrapped up in blankets again that's how you know the movie's over because they're wrapped up in blankets again going over and the music starts playing well and it's a it's a cliche in action movies now too right like at the end of the conflict you get a like a blanket over you and maybe that is something that's done in real life and i think it probably no i think i think blankets is a thing for people who are in shock right right they bring you blankets because it can help your body temperature and all this stuff i mean it totally makes sense you're like out in the fucking cold too like bring them a blanket but there's just something about it in a diehard movie and this sequence where it's like definitely evoking the first movie directly we got to talk about the final conflict but the before that i mentioned in the in the book episode how you know all women love this character and then in this it's so it makes me cringe so bad he's he's talking to this woman uh when he's doing the stuff with the fax machine and she's like i get off in a little while you want to take me out or something and he like points to his wedding ring and he's like you know what's crazy like i would have been fine with that being the only time if that was it, like, he's a good-looking guy for the 90s, right? You know, for Bruce Willis, he's his own-looking guy, I guess. You know, he's, he looks like Bruce Willis, but people find him attractive. <laughs> I get it. And, like, I could buy that this woman flirts with him, and then, like, he turns her down because he's married. So, like, you know, he's – but that it's kind of that, like, uh, you want to be that guy, right? You want to be the guy everybody's attracted to, and it's like, okay, cool. So it's that wish fulfillment. It's the thing – I think you're about to get to it. The thing with a reporter – that really rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> he he's uh, <laughs> they're jumping on, and I know it was like maybe a joke. Eventually, he asks her to help him fly the, in the helicopter yep. and go after this plane, which is we're going to talk about that yeah. absurd plan. But on the way there, she literally says, "If if you help me break this story, I'll have your baby." Yeah. Uh, the way that it's said, and he says, "That's not the kind of ride I'm looking for." <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. So the way that that's all set up and like she, I don't know, the guy's wearing a wedding ring, (laughs) just throwing around these like really wild lines at him and stuff. Well, because she's a woman reporter, James. Yeah. Like how else is she going to interact with our lead man? God, I cringe really (laughs) hard at that one. And I think there was another one at some point in the movie as well, but I I can't quite remember. Uh, Yeah, probably. (laughs) Anyway, they, they get in this, this helicopter and they're attempting to chase a 747 and McLean's like, you know, put it down in front, like knock them, knock them off the road, basically. Like, like, let's try to make sure they can't. And the guy's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, we can't kill ourselves to stop this plane right now. And and then McLean's like, well, I will. He's like, get over the wing. And he gets over the wing. And then I had this weird flash of... um, a twilight zone with a oh yeah there's something on the nightmare, wing <laughs> nightmare, nightmare at 20,000 feet and he's like out there on the wing and I was like there's something on the it wing it would have been funny if he had said that right there's something I would have loved the, the reference yeah <laughs> give us a little reference sure yeah you know it's, it, it was very over the top but like on the list of like offensive things about like as far as like offensive to reality this was not that high I was like okay I can kind of buy it they probably really did this with a stuntman who actually was able to kind of pull it off I imagine it looked practical. Maybe. I don't know, man. I mean, it was the 90s. I bet they did it. I don't know. I think they did it on a set. They had a lot of stunts in this movie. There were times where you could see it was a stuntman for a lot of the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They probably did it on a set, I would think. The plane, maybe not in motion, something like that. I mean, that, you I know? don't know. Maybe it was moving. Maybe it was just moving a little bit. I don't know. I could see it, man. They did some wild, they did some wild helicopter stunts back in the day. Yeah. Um, 
before you had as many deadly uh, helicopter crashes as happened later, I guess. Wait a minute. No, well, that Twilight Zone Well, the Twilight Zone was previous, exactly, yeah, the film. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, how about the boss fights, the back-to-back boss fights yeah. we get here on the wing? Grant. Grant gets thrown into the plane engine, and it's like, at this well, point- Well, he's, like, he's like, I got this guy, and he's like, all right. And then, of course, like right as they're walking out there, don't shoot your gun. It's full of fuel. <laughs> yeah. Like, wait a minute. What? Like. <laughs> <laughs> it sets up multiple things. Yeah, too. it's like, okay, so I guess they're going to have to have a fist fight on a wing multiple times. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, he beats the first guy. He goes down through the engine in a really bloody sequence. Remind, that reminds me very much of Indiana Jones, right? Something like that happens in one of the Indiana Jones movies. The propeller, the propeller in, yeah. in Raiders, yeah, gets the guy. Yeah. and then, The big, yeah, burly yeah, guy. Yeah, way better scene than this. But then, um, and then you get the final conflict. He's like, now you've bested my sub boss. Now the real boss fight, you know, is ready. He gets yep. even says, are you ready for the main event? Something like that. And he comes yeah, out. Yeah, I'm the main yeah. event. Again, cringy yeah. one-liner. He's got the big knife. He tries to stab him and like, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, he kind of gets his ass kicked, honestly. Um, and uh, and gets kicked off the plane, but then he's able to open it. And for me, and, and I'm curious to know where you're at, at, where you're at with this one. For the longest time, the lighting of the fuel that raced down the runway up into the plane and exploded it was like the worst most offensive thing as to reality i'm saying offensive but i mean like offensive to reality <laughs> for me for the longest time ever seeing this but like i think they're there it's not it's you know if you were to rank the top five it's probably towards the bottom like it's it's up there but it's not it, it's like it's just plausible enough because like jet fuel burns really fast and really hot and there is a lot of it coming out of the wing. When you see it, it's not a trickle. It is a fucking gush. There's a lot of, of fuel coming out. Could it plausibly happen? I don't know. Now, I do think that they have like mechanisms built into where flames shouldn't shoot in through the right. through the thing and get into the wing and explode. But like, maybe, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Fa- it fails. What do you, What do you think? Well, I got some facts for you, buddy. Uh, the uh, TV series Mythbusters tested the I idea of they did this. <laughs> blowing up a 747 by igniting a stream of jet fuel and rated it as busted. Yeah. I mean, that figures. <laughs> I mean, of course, right? But And honestly, like you said, not a scene that really bothers me that much. Like, I'm fine with that being sort of the culmination of everything. And he, like, finds a way to best them in a funny, interesting way. Says his catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> you mean, uh, yippee Kaye, Mr. Falcon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that the TNT version? <laughs> That's the, that that is the TBS version, yeah. Uh so anyway, they found that jet fuel essentially kerosene was extremely hard to light in liquid form, uh. especially in a blizzard, and the flames would not have propagated fast enough to catch up to the plane. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. It was going pretty fast. Yeah. For a plane to be lifting off has to be going fast. I just gotta say, I love when anytime the Mythbusters did movie stuff, yeah. by far my favorite episodes. Yeah. That was always so much fun. A lot of their episodes were that. It's a good show. Yeah. <laughs> Best episodes. Bring were, it back. Yeah. All right. Um, Bring it back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think they want to do it anymore, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they're. I think they're on like somewhat good terms, right? Like Jamie and Adam. Yeah. Somewhat, but yeah, I don't I don't know that they have any interest to, to revisit. But they tried to reboot it with like different hosts and stuff, and I just I couldn't get into it. It wasn't, wasn't the same. Well, they brought back some of the some of the Mythbusters, right? They had yeah, like their own I show. Yeah, I think so. But then yeah. but then after that, they tried to completely reboot it with a whole new whole new show. Oh wow, I didn't. Even, I, I think didn't. they have a season where it's all new people tried to do it. Yeah, it was like a few years ago, and it didn't it didn't work. I don't think it did well. Anyway, <laughs> um, so so we, we get we arrive at the end of the movie, right? Like so, it, he blows up the plane full of the bad guys. In the first movie, the terrorists are a cast of characters who are all pretty unique. Even the guys who just die in like one off scenes, like 
they all felt like distinct individual people. They all had different looks and personalities um, to some extent. He's marking off the names as he kills them and keeping track. Here we just have goon after goon. And then he did, like he kills them all in one go at the end. So it doesn't really matter how many of them there are. It's just such a different feel than, than you know the first movie where he's he's got like a list of names and he's keeping track of who he's killed and who he hasn't and how many guys are left. The scale of the story, it just fits so much. It's so much neater and more simplified in a really strong and powerful way when you have like a really... I know this is like technically one location, but you have like everything happening in one location and you have like a set of rules that you've set up as the storyteller. You're like, this is where we're at. This is all the people that are here. And then breaking reality when John McClane gets on a fire hose and jumps out a window and fly like then you're kind of there's something more grounded about it to where it like feels like there's more stakes and you like that. Whereas here it just feels like random stuff is happening for the sake of big battles and fights that, you know, you know, and we've said as much like the, the stakes weren't there. And, and it, it basically, it basically is right. Like we've talked about what this movie is like. That's what they're doing. They're just trying to cash in. Um, so I did want to shout out one line here at the end. I actually did quite like um, it's when Holly and him are reunited. I did think it was weird how he's like screaming for Holly for a while. And like, I don't know, it was kind of a weird sequence. Like I get that that might happen in real life, but I don't know why it needed to be in the movie. But this this moment, uh, I did like the line where she goes, I, I heard there were terrorists at the airport. And then he goes, I heard that, too. And I just I thought that was clever. It was funny. Yeah, That's sure. the kind of line I can see him delivering. It's in a moment where he knows he's safe now. So it totally makes sense that he would be cracking a joke again because he's John McClane. And that's how he, like, deals with trauma. So, like, I'm, yeah, I'm with yeah. it. But, like, you know, other times didn't work. But that one I thought worked pretty well. And then, yeah. And then it just, like, it got kind of cringy just how much it was trying to play the same beats over and over at the end. Like we're going to end this movie in the exact same way we ended the first movie so much so that I thought for sure somebody was going to burst out from underneath a fucking blanket with a machine gun and try and kill him. You know what I mean? I thought that this, I think the music that plays is the exact same too. The the Christmas song. Let it snow or something. Yeah. A little anecdotal, but really well-written and funny show. Everyone knows about, it was kind of underground for a little while, but now it's massive. Uh, Rick and Morty. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's super fun. I've always been a fan of it, but, uh, in between last episode and this episode, I watched one of the more recent episodes of Rick and Morty in, I think season six, and it's literally like all diehard stuff. Oh, really? And it was really fun That's to fun. go into it because like they could just keep referencing like, oh, this character's doing a diehard and, and like th- all these things keep happening. And that kind of felt like what this movie was doing with the original movie <laughs> is like referencing that they were doing a diehard in this movie, mm-hmm. diehard too. Mm-hmm. I uh, I will say, um, knock on wood, and hopefully my book comes out at some point here and people can read it. I have a currently have a Die Hard reference in it. We'll see nice. if, it, if it survives through all the process. You Love know. it. It's Yippie right? Yeah, look out for that. It's not Yippie <laughs> Keep Keep a look out for it. <laughs> That's cool. Man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So we're at the end here. Um, we got to decide what was better ultimately, this movie or the book. I think it'll be pretty quick for me. I'm going to pick movie here. I think that there were things that I felt to be like morally I was against in the book where like we talked a lot about like the depictions of certain characters and and that like, you know, I think in the same way that this movie doesn't quite work as a diehard film in comparison to the original. The book has a little bit of that going on as well, although they're not related in any way, but they feel so similar that um, 
part of the book for me kind of felt like I was getting uh, a return to the same kind of story. And I talked about how like it's not my favorite and it kind of overstays its welcome with some of the technical jargon at times. And it uh, has a good idea of this of this airport, like having some sort of action set piece, big thing happen at an airport. Good conceptual idea. And I think like it didn't really live up to what I wanted from a from a diehard in an airport story, just like the film didn't. But the film did have Bruce Willis and a lot of like the things that I liked about Die Hard they were doing again. And as much as I don't think that I loved that, I liked it more than the novel in this case. I, I mean, OK, so the book, I'm famously not a fan. <laughs> I mean, I definitely talked about how I was pretty underwhelmed by it, found the main character boring as hell. I also found a lot of the other characters boring as hell. I just didn't think the character work was very good. I do think the boring ass main character problem is is fixed a little bit here. We get John McClane; he's just more interesting. He is a shadow of him of his former self here. He's he's a caricature, but he's still better um, than uh, was it Frank Malone? I think was the character's name in the book. Um, so that's an improvement. Um, I thought the villain was about the same in the sense that they're both kind of one note, kind of boring guys. I do like the. You know, again, the positioning of having him be this right wing extremist guy um, makes a little more sense to me and it works a little better. It's a little more, I don't know, comfortable for me as a moviegoer personally. Um, So I was fine with all of that. I think what is going to separate the two is that as much shit as I'm giving this movie for being artistically bankrupt, as I've said, it still is fun in a way that the book really isn't. It does just enough to be like an entertaining entry. I do think it's interesting that like it took a return of McTiernan with a whole new story to really establish a franchise because I don't think the strength of this movie is enough to like launch Die Hard into a franchise. I think this is the kind of movie that you see and you go, okay, well that was a, that was enough of that for now, unless someone comes in with a really good script, which is probably what happened. Now I've heard, I've heard maybe that the third Die Hard is actually based off of like a, the lethal weapon four script. The original Lethal Open 4 script was then turned into it somehow. But I don't know. I'd have to to read into that. We might cover that as a bonus episode or something just to, you know, I know it's not necessarily an adaptation. Oh, that's a good idea. Die Hard 3 is a bonus episode? Let us know. I would like to do that. I like that movie. Especially because if it's better than this one, like, why not? You know, we're familiar with the material enough. Why not? Anyway, yeah, it's going to be a movie for me, ultimately. Um, Not by a landslide, but, and honestly, I don't think the movie's that good, but I just think it is better than that, that book that I did not enjoy very much. Anyway, that's going to be the end of our Christmas coverage. Um, Next week, we are doing our last looks for 2022 episode. And I always look forward to these, you know, look back episodes, our last looks episodes. Um, They're a lot of fun and uh, get to kind of like recap what we actually did this year and and think back, uh, you know, all the books we've read and all the movies we've seen and so forth and and figure out how we feel about them in context. Um, And so, yeah, I'm excited for it. We'll be recording that one and releasing it. I think it'll come out after Christmas. So it'll be truly like a New Year's-ish style episode right there at the end of the year. Um, And hopefully you all join us for that again. Yeah. And if any of our listeners wanted to write in, sort of reminisce about the year, let us know how your year went. Let us know how Ink to Film was involved in your year. We always love to hear that stuff. And in the past, we've read some of the responses we've gotten uh, just from listeners and um, yeah, so let us know some of your favorite projects of the year, anything like that, and, and we might read some of it on the episode. Sure. Yeah, and that would be inktofilm at gmail.com if you want to email us. Um, otherwise, you can use social media. We're at inktofilm on 
Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, for now, Twitter is still alive. We'll see. Um, we're also on TikTok, and we have a YouTube channel, so you can always use YouTube. You know, leave a comment on this video, um, that kind of stuff. So if you wanted to support the podcast in another way, if you liked this episode, let us know in the form of a rating or review on whatever platform you're listening on. Um, and make sure to like and, you know, send us a comment on YouTube. Make sure you're subscribed there. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. And we do bonus episodes on there every month, and including this month, we will be putting one out. Um, so definitely check us out on there. We'd love to have your contribution because it helps keep us going. All right. Well, I've had a good time with uh, Die Hard 2. It's fun <laughs> to have seen like where this goes. I, you know, This isn't something we do, but I just want to ask you. It's very like random and last minute here at the end of the episode. If you had to give it a letter grade, what would you give this movie? Uh, D. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm about the same. Somewhere in the D range. Maybe D plus. Yeah. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> it's one of those films. I, I look forward to maybe checking out three in the future. Um, it, It's funny, too, because I think that Die Hard went like... Good first one, seems like just okay second one, maybe back to good third one, possibly, and then like kind of downhill from there. I right? wouldn't, it's not as good as the first one, but it is pretty good, I think. I, I need to watch it again. But then I imagine, I've only seen four, I haven't seen five, and I think there yeah, might be a six. I felt, and, I've heard that all yeah. the ones that came after were bad. Which, by the way, Bruce Willis also uh, retired recently from, from films because he's got um, some, I think, mental problems going on with some sort of like dementia or something like that. I'm not sure the exact diagnosis, but, um, you know, he's, he's a guy who I haven't always agreed with politically or anything like that, but like, he's a movie star, man. And he's made some good movies over the years. And a lot of them I really, really like. So, you know, I, it is, it is kind of a bummer and, um, I hope, uh, I wish him well. Yeah. Sad to see people get older, man, but thank you all for listening. And until next time, keep adapting. <laughs> <laughs>